Thank you, Thomas. As you've probably noticed, the passage is quite a long one, uh, and it's also uh, quite complex in parts. Uh, what I'm proposing to do is to spend most of our time in the first half of the passage. Uh, by the time we get to the second half, uh, we'll move through that more quickly, probably in larger chunks, with me offering just a, a quick explanation. But we'll work our way through the whole passage, and then at the end we'll have some time to reflect on the implications for us today, particularly in the principles we see at work in the passage, which we can then draw out and apply to us. Before we look further at this passage together, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, open the eyes of our hearts and minds to this passage of Scripture, which you've preserved for our benefit. And we pray that our Holy Spirit would indeed work through it, uh, speak to us personally through it, and show us how it can encourage us to walk the path which you have for us, both as a church and individually. Amen. Uh, do you think that it is ever legitimate to say that a person is lost beyond hope, whilst they're still alive, that is? Uh, to put it another way, if I was to ask you the question, who do you know whom you think could never become a Christian, who comes to mind? Well, the example of the nation of Israel was a case in point. Uh, for the first 30 years after Jesus established the New Testament church, the most vicious persecutors of the Christians was not the Romans, but the Jews. Uh, the New Testament letter of Acts, if you read it, gives us a brief snapshot of the hardness and the hatred of many Jews towards the gospel. In those early years, of course, we have Saul. He was the nemesis of the Christians. He conducted his own ruthless, you could call it a spiritual ethnic cleansing program. That is, of course, until he met the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Thereafter, of course, his whole life changed. Uh, the persecutor became the persecuted. Uh, it was the Jews who harried and hounded Paul wherever he went thereafter. So the question posed in Romans chapter 11 is, is there any hope for the Jews? Are they lost beyond recovery? Uh, let me briefly set chapter 11 in the context in Romans, particularly in regards to Romans uh, 9 to 11. Uh, Romans chapter 11 concludes this section, which we did start back in chapter 9, which considers the place of Israel in God's saving purposes. If you remember in chapters 9 and 10, we have saw the two sides of the coin of salvation. On the one side, God's sovereign choice, and on the other side, human responsibility for the choices we make. So on the one hand, uh, it is true to say that God has chosen those he will save through faith in the gospel. Uh, it is down to his sovereign choice. But on the other hand, it's also true to say that people are responsible for the choices they make, particularly their choice to reject God and his gospel. Now, this is the case for the majority of the Jews who have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So, 
is there any hope for the Jews? As we consider the place of Israel in God's saving plans, uh, we're also going to see broader principles which apply to us. We're going to see that it will strengthen our belief in the power of the gospel to save anybody, no matter how hard a case they may appear to be. We're also going to see that it will humble us as we are reminded once again that we're only saved by God's grace. Uh, we have no grounds to feel superior to others. And it will also encourage us to live lives that are invigorated by grace and in so doing, to draw others to Christ. So let's work through the passage and then have some time at the end to reflect on its implications for us. So back to the key question at hand, and we see it expressed in verse 1. I ask then, did God reject his people? And the answer is, by no means. God has not rejected Israel. Why? Because Israel's unbelief is not total. There is, and there has always been, a faithful remnant of Jews chosen by God's sheer grace. And Paul demonstrates this, firstly, by reference to himself. Uh, he says, firstly, yeah, he says, effectively, it can't be said that God has rejected Israel because, look at me, because of my faith. I'm a Jew, I was very hardened, I was very blasphemous, and yet God didn't give up on me. Therefore, he's saying, it can't be said that God has given up on the Jews. Uh, look at verse 1 as it continues. He says, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Now, a second case which Paul presents, which shows that God has not totally rejected Israel, is then seen in the time of Elijah the prophet. We're going back, of course, to the 8th century BC, which was a dark time for the nation of Israel. The nation had turned its back on God and, by and large, reverted to pagan worship, worship of the Baal. And to the prophet Elijah, it seems like he was the only faithful Israelite left. But no, even then, God by his grace had preserved a remnant of Jews. Verse 2 continues. Uh, don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, uh, how he appealed to God against Israel? Uh, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I'm the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, uh, there has always been in Israel a faithful remnant. Uh, the, if you like, the spiritual Israel, the true Israel, within Israel the nation. Even at the darkest, lowest points of Israel's history even when it seemed that the whole nation had rejected God. Why will there always be a faithful remnant in every generation? Uh, is it due to the law of averages? 
Is it because there will always be a few good, decent people, a few good apples in every barrel of bad apples? And the answer is no. The only reason that there will be a believing remnant is God's grace. Look at verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, there is no, it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Uh, when you look at what happened in Israel's history, uh, it is quite dark. Uh, where the majority of Israel went wrong is that they thought they could earn the righteousness of God by their works. Their proud hearts rejected the message of grace. And consequently, because they rejected the message of grace, God further hardened their arrogant hearts and darkened their understanding. It was a form of retribution. Verse 7 continues. What then? Uh, what Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain, but the elects did. Uh, the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, and ears so they could not hear, to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. So, God has graciously saved a minority of Jews, what is called a remnant, but has hardened the majority of disbelieving Jews. So, what hope is there for this unbelieving, hardened majority of Jews? Is there any hope for them? Or are they lost without any possibility of recovery? Verse 11. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. The reason there is hope, even for them, is that God is sovereign in salvation. We're going to see that God commandeers the human choice of disbelief and rejection in his purposes. The Jews' rejection of his grace does not thwart God's plan. Rather, it is actually part of God's plan. And we're going to see that the plan actually breaks down into three stages. In the first stage, uh, Israel rejects God's grace. And that results in the gospel then going to the Gentiles. And of course, we see that in Paul's ministry. Uh, whenever he gets to a town, he goes to, as we saw last week, uh, to the synagogue. He presents the gospel to the Jews. When they reject it, he leaves the, the synagogue and he goes to the Gentiles and takes the gospel to them. Uh, that is stage one. Israel rejects, and as a result, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And in the second stage, the Jews see the Gentiles receiving the gospel and they are provoked to envy. Uh, they want it for themselves. Uh, verse 11 continues. Rather, 
because of their transgression, speaking of the majority of Jews, salvation has come to the Gentiles. There it is, that's stage one. But then we get a glimpse of stage two, to make Israel envious. Uh, provoking the Jews to envy was one of Paul's objectives in his ministry to the Gentiles. Look at verse 13. I am talking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and to save some of them. Do you think it is ever right to envy something? Do you think it's ever right to envy something? Uh, envy is normally a negative word, but actually there is a positive form of envy. What is envy? Well, it's a person's desire to have for themselves something that somebody else has. And what determines whether envy is good or evil depends on the nature of the thing desired and whether one has a right to its possession. So, if something is in itself evil, or if it belongs to someone else and we have no right to it, then to envy that thing is sinful. But if the thing desired is in itself good, and it's a blessing from God which he means for all people to enjoy, then to envy it, uh, to covet it, to say, I want that for myself, is actually okay. It is not wrong. And this is the sort of positive envy that God stirs up in the hearts of Jews when they see the gospel going to Gentiles. The question is, how would the Christians provoke the Jews to envy? We get a, an understanding of it when we look back into the Old Testament and we think about what God's purpose was for his people, Israel, in that Old Testament era, particularly in relation to the Gentiles. Uh, the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament was supposed to be a light to the nations. Their job was to be different, to be a holy people. And as they lived out God's holy law, they of course reflected God's beautiful character. And the idea was that the Gentiles would look at Israel and say, hey, that's different. I want that. I want to know their God. And so now in the New Testament era, the church has taken on that mantle. It's what we were looking at in the kids' talk. It's what we see, uh, summarized by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5, verse 16. He says there, uh, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The attractive, gospel-shaped lives of the Christians as they embraced the gospel was to be a light to not just other Gentiles but also to the Jews. The idea was that when the Jews saw the gospel transforming people's lives, these Gentile lives, and when they saw the gospel nurturing vibrant gospel-shaped community, they would say, hey, that's different. 
I want that. And so they will be drawn to true faith in Christ. So that's stage one and two. Uh, the third stage is set sometime in the future. If Paul wins some Jews to the gospel through envy now, he foresees a time of future fullness when there will be a larger scale Jewish acceptance of the gospel. Uh, we see it in verse 12 and also in verse 15. Firstly, verse 12. But if their transgression, that is the Jewish transgression of turning from Christ, means riches for the world, the Gentile world, and their loss, the Jewish loss, means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their, that is the Jews, fullness bring? Now look at verse 15. For if their rejection, that is the Jewish rejection, is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead. So, Paul foresees a future time when more Jews will embrace the gospel, when there will be a fuller acceptance of the gospel in the Jewish nation. Now, the Jewish faithful remnants, which he sees in his time, would be seen as, if you like, a first fruit of a far greater harvest to come. Uh, the gospel faith of Jews such as Paul is, in a sense, a sign that there will, there will one day be many more like him. Uh, he will be a first fruit. Uh, that's what Paul's getting at in these images he gives in verse 16. Let's look at them again. Uh, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, speaking of believing Jews, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. In verse 16, we've just seen Paul comparing the current Jewish believers to a root, and he's promising more holy branches to come. And then in verse 17, he expands the metaphor of a tree, uh, using now this image of an olive tree, but he changes what the branches and the roots represent. Now, in understanding the imagery, uh, it's helpful to have uh, some horticultural background. I don't know what you're planning to do in your retirements, but maybe you've had the thought of buying some land and having an olive grove and going into olive farming. Well, if that is one of your ambitions, let me give you a bit of a horticultural insight and tip which may be useful. If you ever find that your olive trees are not bearing any olives for you, there is a very interesting trick which you can use. What you do is you go and find a wild olive tree and you break off a branch and then you graft it into your own cultivated olive trees. And what happens is it seems to shock the tree into action. It goes, what is this? And it's suddenly prompted, apparently, to produce fruit again, olives. Sounds incredible, but there we go. If you ever go into olive tree farming, bear that in mind. And that is what we need to remember as we look now at what Paul says using this image of an olive tree. Uh, in the image, uh, the Gentiles are the wild olive branch that is then grafted onto the cultivated olive tree of God's people. Uh, they now share in the same nourishing sap the life-giving gospel of justification by faith. Look at verse 17. If some of the branches have been broken off and you speaking to the Gentiles, though a wild olive shoot have been grafted in 
among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, the olive root. And we're going to see the challenge of the metaphor is that the Gentile Christians should not become proud and judgmental of the Jews. They are the branches that have been grafted in. No Gentile should think that a Jew is less deserving and they as Gentiles more deserving of their place on the vine, the olive tree, as God's people. The Gentile branches are only there by faith and they remain there only by faith. Verse 18 continues because we broke it off mid-sentence. Do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Uh, It's a warning. Uh, The sad story of Israel is a warning against presumption to Christians. Though Israel were God's chosen people, they started to think that they were the choice people. Uh, They became confident that they were in God's people no matter how they lived, simply because they were physical descendants of Abraham. And this was their undoing. Uh, They were then the branches that were broken off. And the warning to the Gentiles, which have been engrafted, is don't fall into the same error of presumption. Just as the Jews were cut off because they didn't continue to trust in God, so also will the Gentiles be cut off should they turn away from God's grace through faith. Look at verse 22. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, providing that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. So what hope is there for the Jews? It follows that if God has saved the pagan Gentiles, then in a sense... Saving the hardened Jews is, in a sense, easier. Uh, Since God can save the Gentiles who are born without all the privileges of the Jewish people, he can certainly save a Jew who was born into them. Uh, The regrafting in of the natural branches is, in a sense, easier, and it's perfectly possible. Verse 23. If they do not persist in unbelief, which is talking about the hardened Jews they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So, uh, Paul reveals a mystery to help the Gentile Christians not to become conceited. And the mystery is that God has not finished with the nation of Israel. That Israel's hardness is not permanent. 
God will still draw more Jews to himself. All of God's true Israel, that is the elect from both the Jews and the Gentiles, will be saved in God's time. Look at verse 25 onwards. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. What we then go on to see in verses 30 to 32 is that God is not showing preference. In his sovereign salvation plan, he uses the Jews to reach the Gentiles and the Gentiles to reach the Jews. It's true, of course, that God's mercy doesn't reach all without exception. Some people sadly are lost. But God's mercy reaches all without distinction. His sovereign choice has chosen people from the Jews and the Gentiles. God is not showing preference. Look at verse 30 onwards. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So as we come to the end of these three chapters, chapters 9 to 11, which have delved and pondered God's plan of salvation, we are finally moved to praise and wonder. We've seen that God is sovereign over his creation, yet he operates in such a way as to not override our responsibility. Uh, to fully understand the interleaving of God's sovereignty and human responsibility is beyond us. Uh, then again, uh, surely that is to be expected. Surely it is to be expected that it is to be beyond us. For otherwise, uh, God would not be God. There would be something about God which is always going to be beyond our comprehension. His justice and his mercy are in operation. In ways that we cannot now currently see, he is wonderfully working out his purposes. And one day his purposes will arrive at a dazzling climax. A people for himself, drawn from every tribe, nation, and tongue. God's ways are amazing, and they evoke within us praise. Look at verse 33 onwards. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? 
Who has ever given to God that he should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So let's conclude with a few thoughts of application as we draw out the principles we've seen. We're going to see firstly there's an encouragement. Uh, Secondly, a warning. And thirdly, a challenge. Firstly, there is an encouragement here. An encouragement to trust that God's good saving purposes will prevail. Uh, We live in a Western society which is, of course, increasingly ambivalent, even hostile to the Christian faith. Uh, We see people all around us who are hardened against the gospel. And it is easy to lose hope, to conclude that they are lost beyond recovery. And yet we've seen that God can yet be merciful even to those who have got hard hearts. Even to those who are lost, it would seem, beyond redemption. The faraway people. Because nobody is beyond hope. God is sovereign in salvation. Now we've seen it at the very beginning of our series in Romans. Romans 1 verse 16. Uh, Let's look at that again. Paul says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everybody who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So you see, it's an encouragement to continue praying for people. It's an encouragement to continue loving people in the hope that God will yet be merciful to them. God's grace can break even the hardest hearts. Of course, God's grace melted Paul's heart, the Jew who was initially hardened as much as one could be hardened against the gospel. So that's the first thing we see, an encouragement to trust in God's good saving purposes and that they will prevail. Secondly, there's a warning against the danger of presuming upon God's grace if we are Christians. Is it not easy to start to take grace for granted? Is it not easy to start drifting from grace? Is it not easy as Christians to start to think that we ourselves are maybe in some way worthy of God's choice and his favor? As a result, Is there not a danger, therefore, that we start to adopt uh, what we see in the parable of the prodigal son? Remember the elder brother who's judgmental of the younger brother who's come back. We have that judging spirit in our hearts. We look down our noses at others. We feel in some way spiritually superior, especially to those who've made a mess of their lives. There is a warning in this passage not to be presumptuous of God's grace. We haven't deserved to be chosen by God. There is nothing in us which warranted it. It is by His grace alone. And the more we revisit grace, the more we will keep our hearts soft, and the greater will be our gratitude at God's undeserved mercy on us. And the more that elder brother judging spirit which we all nurture in our hearts will be eroded. 
Thirdly, and finally, uh, there is a challenge here to live increasingly gospel-shaped lives which make others envious. As we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus calls us to be a light. Uh, He calls us to live gospel-shaped lives, to be a light to others, so that they too will be drawn to trust in Christ. Christians, when they live out the gospel, it will be attractive as we live out the gospel of grace. People will look on, and in some way, they're going to be envious in a positive way. They're going to see something good, something wholesome, something which God intends them to have and wants them to have. And in so doing, as they see the light of our lives lived out, as they see the gospel shining through our words and our actions of love, they're going to say, that's different. I want that for myself. And so that is the encouragement to us and the challenge to us to think through what does it look like for us to live out the gospel more deeply. We've been thinking, of course, as a church of our vision. And that is a healthy question for us to continue to ask. How can we as a church community more effectively be a light in the communities, plural, in which God has placed us? How can we radiate God's mercy, his love, and his holiness? How can we do that together? And when we reflect on our lives individually, it is that challenge. How can I go deeper in living out this beautiful, attractive gospel of grace so that it is a light to those in my life? Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy that chooses us, uh, undeserved uh, people, to be recipients of your mercy. Uh, You have called us into your people if we have faith in Christ. And we pray, therefore, that we would then never take grace for granted. We would live out the gospel increasingly and more deeply, such that light in our life shines out to a watching world. Please do this, we pray, so that we can be used in your good and gracious purposes and so that we can bring glory to your name and delight to many other people's lives and hearts who don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.